Hi, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome back to the Building Our Future podcast. It's been a busy few months for me getting married and tackling the UK retail market, so apologies for the lack of episodes. But I'm back now with a great lineup of guests, so please do stay tuned. Today, I'm kicking things off with a look at the growing world of street art. What is it, and how can it improve our perceptions of and engagement with the built environment? How can property owners harness the power of street art to improve their holdings? As ever, get involved in the conversation on social media. You can find me on Twitter at building underscore R. My guest today is Dr. Lee Bofkin, the co-founder and CEO of Global Street Art, a unique artist-led street art channel that has organized over 2,000 legal street art murals in the past six years. Holding a PhD in evolutionary mathematics from Cambridge, Lee was a former breakdancer with the Soul Mavericks crew, where he represented the UK, and he has travelled the world extensively, documenting street art worldwide. He alone has taken more than 60,000 photographs for the Global Street Art Archive, and back in 2014, authored the book Concrete Canvas. Lee, a big welcome to Building Our Future for the man whose CV makes me feel incredibly bland. <laughs> Thanks very much, Bert. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me along. So the first thing I have to ask is, sure. how on earth does an evolutionary biologist become a leading figure in street art? I think you flatter me by calling me a leading figure <laughs> in street art, but um, for want of something better, it, it's a great area to be involved in and to be able to contribute to. Uh, I guess my background's pretty mixed. I've always been interested in lots of different things. I was really interested, as, as you said, in, in, in breakdancing or b-boying, uh, but quite a long time ago, and then 15 years ago, more or less, I tore my knee, had to stop dancing overnight, uh, and I picked up a camera. So I had the same amount of energy, but all of a sudden my main kind of creative outlet was taken away. And so I just started photographing graffiti at the time, and then street art was kind of becoming more popular. On the other side of my life, yeah, I, I, my, my second degree, it was a, uh, an evolutionary biologist. I finished that in around 2005. And then because of the maths component, I got uh, a job offer from an American company to, to work out in the States, to live in LA, which was amazing. Uh, and it was a finance company, taught me sort of corporate finance. I met my business partner and our investor, Conrad, who's the other co-founder of Global Street Art. And he kind of backed this crazy project and sort of took a bit of a flyer on me that if it, you know, went wrong, maybe we'd be like a, a, a sort of a tax write-off or something. Uh, and we didn't really have a business model to start, but I, while I was kind of recovering and he was getting better, I had with Conrad's backing, the ability to travel to pretty much anywhere in the world, which I was doing for work anyway, other work at the time. So what, what kind of places are we talking? I was made redundant and joined uh, a good friend of mine, Adrian's crazy startup insurance company to live in Spain and be near Gibraltar for tax purposes. <laughs> Whenever I hear myself say that now, I'm still so surprised that that <laughs> happened. But there weren't any other jobs. Global Street Art hadn't, didn't really exist fully then. I didn't know what else to do, but it was the first time I got an exposure into what it meant to be in a startup. And Spain was really painted. So I was working on spreadsheets, helping Adrian plan that business. And every weekend, I'd go to a different city in Spain and I'd try and take a thousand photos of more graffiti. So I was going all over Spain, ended up taking well 10,000 photos plus and then it started to build an archive and then my one great invention at the time was a beer sickle ride I had a few beers and cycled around a bit of southern Spain and decided sitting on a, an electricity substation overlooking a bay I was kind of thinking I've really enjoyed the last few months I really love getting into graph and photographing it and I'd love to just keep doing that I wonder if 
anyone would back me, if Conrad would be like, yeah, all right, we'll try it. And, and if Adrian would sort of, you know, let me go. And everyone was behind it. They said, look, you know, travel for, for a couple of months over the summer, for a few months, take all the photos, the costs were covered anyway. And then if there's something in it, you can try and pursue it. And if not, I still had the job with Adrian to go back to. So, you know, I got really lucky. People made it easy for me. I took 25-ish thousand photos over the course of that sort of summer. So after Spain, I traveled to South America for a few weeks, to Australia. And at that point, I really, really got the buzz and kind of figured it was so much more fun looking at graffiti and street art than it was, um, you know, being in Excel spreadsheets. At the time, the irony is I spend a lot of time in spreadsheets now with budgets and all the things that you have to do now. So, Don't we all? It's great yeah. fun. Uh, so I didn't really get to escape it. But that wasn't the point. I guess it was. I found something that I was really interested in that was consuming enough and seemed to be the right blend of the two otherwise distinct parts of my life between the creative dance stuff uh, and then the kind of the sciencey business thinking sort of stuff separately. And it, it felt like a really good hybrid. And, you know, we started it with no business model. And, and that was, I went full time in 2012. Before we, we talk about what you're actually doing at GSA, street art, is that simply defined as, as it sounds, art on the street, or is there more to it? The definition of street art is moving a little bit malleable, and it depends about who you speak with. There's one definition that, um, which is, is street art is all the stuff that's out there on the street that's not graffiti. Often they're put as a kind of opposed to each other, but that can either be stylistic. When you talk about street art or graffiti, you're, you're talking about an art form and or potentially a crime and or a subculture. So you've got an aesthetic, different aesthetic traditions, and street art is a bit of a catch-all term that really includes so many different types of painting. So whether they're works of abstract works or works of calligraphy and some modern typography has brought it within street art and realism a lot of stuff that we call street art is, is really so many different movements but it's outside it's there on the street it's combining different things today and then you've got the people that paint it that are sort of friends and there's communities around that and that's the subculture element and then you've got potentially the crime side of it especially on the more graffiti side where it's about authority or permission and who has or hasn't given permission yeah global street art you've been going for what uh, since 2012? Yeah, that's right. Where is the business now in terms of what is your service offering? So we think of ourselves and we are a mission-driven organization and that mission is very simple. It's to live in painted cities and we explore that in different ways. The easy one to talk about is our, our online presence, so globalstreetart.com. It's a, a large online platform, as you mentioned. We've got artists from over 100 countries have uploaded over 100,000 photos of their own work and we promote their art, their work, to our roughly half a million fans on social media. And, and that in itself is important because with the advent of social media, which we should talk about, that's changed a lot of people's perceptions of street art. Yep. It used to be that you would see street art or graffiti or painting maybe on your way to work, maybe in your neighborhood, you, or you could travel for it. But now you're exposed to the very best from all over the world, and that's the stuff that gets shared the most. The second side of what we do is we, um, we have different programs that basically work with property developers to turn boring construction site hoardings into spaces, managed art spaces. We work with private landlords that have got walls that uh, they're happy to have painted. We work with housing estates. We've got a, a beautiful program called Art for Estates that's active mostly up in the borough of Camden, but we're active in about three or four different housing estates uh, across London. And again, helping artists find spaces to paint. 
the book that you mentioned we brought out, Concrete Canvas, in 2014. Uh, publishing was, was an early idea, but it, it, it wasn't sustainable. We didn't make any money out of doing it. And then we also tried gallery shows. That was a very hard industry to get into because you'd incur all of the costs up front and you wouldn't know if you would sell anything until you opened the gallery doors. Uh, and then eventually we had a break and someone said, can you basically do the same thing but, but do it for us, a client? It was EasyJet's in-flight magazine. We painted a wall that was then photographed that became the front cover of their in-flight magazine. And, and then the penny dropped and we're like, okay, I get it. There's an agency here. So that side of the business has moved into uh, hand-painted advertising. And now this is re-establishing that kind of painting, commercial murals, the branded stuff in an age where people are connected, are on social media. That's probably, that's over half of the commercial side of what we do. So a a tangible example of that might be? We just completed a mural uh, in Manchester last week for Umbro. So they wanted to celebrate football fans. uh, And so it was a a wall that we uh, look after. So we're landlords as well. So we we have some long-term agreements with access to walls, sorry. And it's providing that full service for a client They've got a design, they want to find a space to do it, they want to find someone to translate that design onto that space to go out and paint it, handle all the health and safety, handle all the logistics, and to then record and document that and then help them publish it on social media. The point to be uninitiated is it's not, you're not painting an advert, or the artist isn't painting an advert, they're painting a piece of art where, where the Umbro message is... It really depends client to client. So sometimes, you know, the work is always very distinct. So sometimes it will be a replication. The client wants their same big, advert Big painted. logo or whatever. Exactly. And, and that's just that part of outdoor advertising. It's quite a process and operation, but we make no mistakes. That stuff is advertising. It's not the same as street art in its normal sense. And that's why we have the name Global Street Art Agency to distinguish between the community stuff that we do and that very commercial stuff. Now, that's not all of the the agency does at all. We also have a side that partners with different organizations, including uh, brands to create content. So content-driven campaigns where it's more about the content capture of the painting or the creation of the art than it is that the art itself would maybe be branded. And then we also have another side where we work with landlords and developers on, you know, what you would probably call placemaking activities. So that includes everything from turning derelict petrol stations into meanwhile spaces by giving them that kind of facelift, essentially. It's a no-brainer. If you want to change the way people feel about being in a space, you change the way that the space looks. And painting is a relatively inexpensive way of doing that relative to, say, knocking something down and and building a new building. Right. So it's like giving something a tattoo, essentially, or just changing the color, etc. We are uh, having this conversation here on on Carnaby Street. Yeah. You only have to look out the window and, you know, the the light pastels is dead simple, but it resonates. What kind of permanence are we dealing with here? Is it... Does it really depend on the installation? We've been brought in for mural restoration projects and mural projects that were painted in the 80s. With modern technology and modern materials, you're talking about uh, mural longevity that is decades. So you can stabilise walls, you can use uh, very a whole series of uh, masonry-appropriate paints and spray paints and then apply la- layers of varnish and UV coating, and you can create something that lasts for decades. And what about planning regulations? Planning regulations is a very complicated topic and it depends what you're talking about. I think the first thing that you have to be aware of is to be careful and cognizant of those regulations. 
I think the makeup of those regulations is quite hodgepodge and how they're enforced or encouraged in different, even boroughs within London is very different. Westminster enforces its policies in a way that maybe beyond its written policies from time to time. Um, generally speaking, for the purposes of art, it should benefit from GPDO, General Permitted Development Orders. Right. Um, and then there shouldn't be a requirement for a planning consent, unless it's, say, a listed building or in a conservation area. But even that is uh, complicated. I painted my door at university in Frisian cow, and that, that got <laughs> shut down by the council. Yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. Within all of, of what we've done, there's been very few areas of friction over the years but there have been some sort of fun sort of nowhere worthy <laughs> examples where you're like ah oh, right maybe we shouldn't do that or you know i think one of the challenges of supporting artists painting in public spaces you don't want all the art to be really dull and anodyne and to not have any point or bite to it but at the same time you're acting as a go-between between landlords and artists so getting stuff up that's really biting and political can cause problems sometimes and and if it's likely to offend people then things can get shut down You've got, yeah, the, the artists and the uh, building owner and potentially the brand as well, if it's an advertising brief. But you also have the audience. As an agency, where does your responsibility lie? One way to ask the question is who's your client? For the pure art side of it, our client is really the artist. So if we're organising, if an artist has asked for a space to paint, do you have any spaces, what's free this week, et cetera, et cetera, we're working for the artist. Now, it's not a transactional role. There's no money that changes hands. We support art where we can. We try and provide materials as well. We're really working on behalf of the artist. So it's about hopefully trying to facilitate that artist having a good experience of painting. But I'd be like saying, look, here's a map, here's where you can paint, here's the equipment you need, here's pre-paint, here's, uh, we'll, we'll film it for you, all of those sides. But on the brand side, you might be acting for the brand sure. or you're acting for the landlord. So I guess the question are, who are your audiences and what are, your, what are you doing? One of the interesting things, I think, is that you're doing everything in public space. So you always have more than one audience. So even if your client is the advertising company or your client is the artist or your client is the landlord, the people consuming that are the general public because it's being painted outside. All right. And, and in terms of audience, so you've mentioned you've got half a million social media followers, mm -hmm. almost as many as me, actually. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you have um, kind of insight as to who these followers are? What the, is, is there a kind of general profile? Social media is one way to reach your audience, right? Uh, your audience is also yeah. everyone outside. So in part, your audience is who's near that wall or walking past that wall. And they're probably the most, they are the most important audience because they're the people really experiencing it in its full glory at full scale. Yeah. That's crucial. But the people that spend time and follow on social media are not necessarily the same as the people that are seeing it outside. Right. Different social media channels have different demographics generally so on on facebook we'll have an audience that's biased more 25 to 45 and male the fan base of street art is at like 60 percent male 40 percent female mm. on facebook roughly right. on twitter it will be an older audience because twitter users are older yeah so it varies according to who's using different channels we have 10,000 followers on pinterest as well and that's a more female audience mm. um so yeah you know you, you can have insight to that i think the question is, is really what's the value of that social media audience? Is it, uh, you know, a, a casual audience of fans is not necessarily a consumer base that you uh, would sell prints to. They might turn up to events that you organize. They might not. 
because we've got our, our website and there's artists from 100 countries, it's a platform. Yeah. A website. That's globalstreetart.com. That's the, the community platform, which is distinct from globalstreetart.agency, which is the agency website. So on, on globalstreetart.com, artists have signed up on that website over the years. And eventually we've had an email because they've also followed us on social media that says, oh, by the way, we're coming to London. We'll be in London in a month. We're in London now. Are there any places that we can paint? And then those relationships become you know, real. You actually meet the, you meet the artist, you spend some time. It, it's a big part of that. The value of that social media is those, those relationships. I'm obviously looking at things through the property owner's perspective, or at least the, the built environment. And we've spoken a lot on this podcast about how just owning a property is is um, a thing of a past, and you now need to provide, you know, rather than just space, uh, a service along with that. Yeah. And I actually think you've got to go a space beyond that. And it, it's really how is the how is what you're doing relevant to the local community? Uh, and one of the big challenges within that is if you're talking about community, how do you keep it authentic? And particularly when you are engaging with brands and you've got a, a dedicated audience on social media or in reality, how do you ensure that your street art is seen still as, as authentic and not gimmicky? The idea of providing community is a phrase that comes up and I think you have to be really careful how you use it. I think you said it well and I think it's more about like providing spaces for communities. I think where property developers can do well is they recognize that those communities already exist and you're facilitating them. So you're providing spaces for people to get together to do things that they want and that's really fragile. And that's where I think property developers, because it's not reflected in a spreadsheet, it's really nuanced. And I'll give you an example, can do things or not know that they're doing things that can really help culture, help support culture or harm culture. The, the place that I start on this is culture is fragile. Uh, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. There used to be a space in central London called the Trocadero. It was the old shopping centre. And it was not, uh, a, you know, it was an old shopping centre. It's now closed. It's being redeveloped. There was a period where that was ending, where for a few years, it became um, a really important centre for London's dance community. Okay. And I know it well because it's my old breakdance crew and lots of other people. So five, seven nights a week, whatever it was, uh, dancers of all different styles would go down there simply because they had a free space to train in the basement that was dry. It was in central London and hundreds of dancers would get together uh, regularly and they would meet. You would have club nights came from that. Relationships came from that. New kind of experiments with dance would come from that. And it was really the accidental provision of that space that made it really valuable to the dance community. But of course, that doesn't have a financial impact on the it, it didn't change the way it was developed. Everyone knew it was a temporary space. That's, you know, sadly one of those things. But when that place went, when it got closed down and redeveloped, nothing replaced it. And so culture, I find, is often really poorly supported. Some subcultures and communities struggle to find spaces to get together and share whatever it is, the things that they're interested in. What that means is for the addition of a little extra resource, you can have an outsized impact. You know, I don't know of many, or even, I can't think of any, I'm sure there are some chess parks in London, for example. Yeah. You build one or two chess parks, you have a place for communities, the chess community, to coalesce, to sit, and, you know, and yeah. it doesn't take much additional resource. One or two of those kind of spaces, if you've ever been to Central Park in New York and seen the chess players there, you know, I think Poppy Fisher came out there. There's a lot of famous stories and examples, and I'm a terrible chess player, and I went there and I got my ass handed to me <laughs> in like two moves. 
Um, but it was the experience of going there and knowing that there's a place that's going to last where a community can gather around as a focal point. Um, and I think those focal points are really important. Now, the community itself is authentic because they're provide because they've got their own interests, and that's what really brings them together. The space itself is authentic by providing becomes authentic because it becomes valuable to that space. And it's not about for me, it's like authenticity. It's 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 a value. But for for me, it's not a value of it's not a financial value, but it's a value to that community that makes a space feel more quote unquote authentic presumably because someone's also already taken the time to work out that chess is what's enjoyed in that community or and it's not forced on you it's not oh by the way we're putting a ping pong table in here come play ping pong there's both ways around so someone can do the research you can work with someone that knows the local area you can know with work with with groups and there's an increasing number that understand the needs of those different kind of communities and can probably advise on it but there's also a sense of if you build it they will come now it depends if you're talking with a london centric point of view or if you're talking about another town another city somewhere that doesn't have london is so big and so well connected you could build pretty much anything for a, a swing dance community to an axe throwing community whatever it is i've been to one of those axe throwing communities <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and it requires that space and if the space goes then the yeah. community disbands it doesn't have the same way of coalescing and that's one of the problems always of kind of you know rising rents and you get into a really big com- you know difficult cool. conversation that communities and artists are, can be sort of priced out of neighborhoods but if we bring it back to street art if you're a property owner is yeah. there a temptation that you're like okay street art this sounds this all sounds really interesting why don't i just go for a really well-known artist and create a street art piece which is going to bring people to my property because they're going to feed off you know this this brand and come and see him is that the right approach or should you be getting something which is more relevant and potentially authentic? So there isn't an, an absolute right or an absolute wrong approach, right? So um, what I mean is like there's a spectrum of options. So your, your, your basic option is do nothing. And if, yeah. if, if you've chosen to bring in a famous or well-known artist to do a signature piece and that generates attention, you've done something more than nothing. You know, if that was painted by a local artist or there was a connection to the local space that adds and offers something more as well but at least you've still moved away from nothing there's plenty of examples where someone's brought in the same famous artist and it's gone well or it's gone really badly because they didn't speak with the local groups or the local artists or the community or the the artwork wasn't sensitive enough so you know i think what you can always say about uh, doing nothing is it comes with with relatively low risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that, but if you do nothing over an extended period of time, you kind of fade away into yeah, the right. background. It doesn't add something. But, you know, you you learn by doing. You try and engage the communities you're working with, and, and hopefully over time you get to build your knowledge up and do something that's more meaningful. What that looks like varies enormously from place to place. All right, and I accept the the variability point. I don't but... know if that was even an answer. No, but... <laughs> no, that, that, that is. I mean, it's it's part of an, on, an ongoing answer. So, if you, from the point of view of a, whether it's a city, a town, or a neighbourhood, yeah, how can that positive outcome kind of manifest itself? How how can you tell whether your art has had a positive impact on the community? You're then talking about a a few different things. So you're talking about the engagement process, the upfront, and then you're talking about measuring its success. Yeah, so so if we we can deal with uh, the measurables separately, but just generally, just from a thematic perspective, what are the potential positive outcomes of, of art in the community? The first one is 
I mean, this sounds silly, but it makes a wall or a space look better. And that means to a general person on the street, it, it, there's a general consensus that something looks better than it did before. Right. Um, now, that the then impact will, it potentially changes the way people feel about being in that space and how much time, dwell time, people spend in that space. So it's, it's about, you know, feeling better and giving people the impression that a space is kind of cared for. It's also a signal that there's people out there painting. So, you know, the, the result is that you have a mural, but it signifies that this whole process that someone cared enough to do something. Yeah. I think that signal is kind of important as well. Isn't that just kind of aesthetic rather than... So then there's the effect that happens afterwards. If it slows people down and people are more likely to spend that much more time in an area because of the painting, I think it creates better conditions for the good functions of communities. People might not stop to talk, but if you stop because you're taking a photo and someone's next to you and they're taking a photograph of the wall, well, then, you know, you, you, you might see those people again more often. You might make friends. Or it sparks a conversation. So it kind of goes back to like the idea of the Agora, right? The Greek, the the marketplace for ideas. That is a place where people go, they stop, they spend time, and they know that they're supposed to be there to discuss ideas and things. Part of that working is that people slow down. People slow down, they spend more time in a space, and they're more likely to have those conversations. Art not only sends those signals potentially that a space is cared for, but they also can kind of create this atmosphere where people are more likely, hopefully, to talk with each other, speak with each other, and and, and make friends and connections. So I think all of that is there as well. There's also the idea that art can challenge, and murals should be able to make you think or, you know, stimulate ideas, inspire creativity. So those are some of the ways in which art can have a positive impact on public space. I should give a a quick plug at this point to the um, ULI. Uh, Have you come across them? Urban Land Institute. I do not know these. So they they, uh, have set up the Urban Art Forum, which is um, bringing together a whole whole people across um, art and real estate to look into a couple of these thoughts and ideas of yeah how we how we can measure the impact what art should be bringing to the uh, the built environment and just picking up on on your point of the difference between aesthetic and actually tra- kind of challenging people mm. what do you think of a trend which seems to be kind of prevalent in the u.s at the moment where you've got museum of ice cream uh, the color factory etc which um have you seen these that uh, they're kind of um instagram palaces of right. uh, of um I'm not sure whether you call it art or just colour, but it, the idea appears to be that you just yeah. go and take a lot of photos of yourself against colourful I mean, backdrops. It's, it's relevant in itself. itself. It's almost like a bit of a cultural virus. It's no surprise to me that a place that is really pro-selfie becomes it just perpetuates right. itself because it leads to a lot of selfies, more people go there. If that's what people are into, I think the problem with that is it's devoid of everything else, of the of the value that's behind it but if people have fun i guess i'm not i'm not really here to judge i saw something recently i thought for years someone was going to make a selfie theme park this to me doesn't sound any different for it and it and it's a sign of the times i don't know why any of us would be surprised that that's happening unsurprisingly you'd find it in a shopping center there was a, a recently i think it was blue water it was a very selfie driven activity that encouraged people to come down and take selfies it makes a lot of sense that if you're a shopping centre, you would want to encourage that kind of behaviour, and then it perpetuates and it brings foot traffic. Yeah. Just... Well, you should check these things out, because they are exactly, as you say, uh, yeah. selfie theme parks. Yeah. 
So how, how can people get in touch, uh, either to see your work or contact yeah. you about commissioning work? There's a bunch of different ways to follow what we're doing and to get in touch. So, you know, the, the, the easiest way is, is obviously to send us an email. Uh, we, we are dudes at globalstreetart.com. I'm Lee at globalstreetart.com. You can see the artists who've signed up to the, the platforms, amazing street art from all over the world, uh, which is globalstreetart.com. We're relaunching that site quite soon. You can follow us on Instagram at globalstreetart. The commercial work is online, uh, globalstreetart.agency, www.globalstreetart.agency, uh, and also on, for example, Instagram at globalstreetart.agency again. So it's pretty easy to follow us. We're on, we're on most social networks. Are you allowed to have any favorite artists? I've got so many favorite artists and, and favorite pieces. I think one of the things that I find quite impossible is to separate the fact that I know the artist from their artwork because I'm really fortunate to have this a great context, which is just being friends with a lot of artists. Ali, you seem like a guy who's got a lot of time in his hands, so I'm sure you've been listening to back editions of my podcast, so you'll know which questions are coming next. Please. Which is... Um, yeah, if you could recommend our listeners one book that's influenced your thinking and what you do, what would it be? It's difficult because there's there's quite a f- there's quite a few books uh, that I, I typically cite, and there's the ones that come up more often, and there's the other ones that don't. I think, look, just to pick one out of the air, the Medici Effect. I think it's by Franz Johansson. That was a that was a, a good book. It's probably a little bit dated now, and it's just the first one that springs on the top of my head. Uh, it basically talks about the Medici Florentine banking family and how their uh, activity helped kickstart or give support to the renaissance and really it was that they had funding and they were able to so lots of different disciplines came to florence at that time in art in science and medicine and all of these different things and because people were in close proximity you had this really fruitful interaction between the different academic disciplines right i'll take that as an answer that's pretty that's pretty good um (laughs) favorite building that's an amazing question the schindler house uh, built in 1922 in Los Angeles. I used to live near there. It was built by Oscar Schindler uh, in the 20s. It was built out of cast concrete slabs that were laid in place and then erected. So they were tipped up. Now, what was amazing about the building, it was quite bohemian at the time. It was basically made out of two L-shaped wings for two couples. So you'd have two couples cohabiting within one space. And every room and the garden, because Schindler came from Austria, which was colder and moved to the LA climate, every room, including the garden, had three features. It had a fireplace for warmth, it had a wall for security, and then it had a a vista or a, a view for quality of life, basically. So the garden has the high hedge, every room inside has got the fireplace, but there was no bedroom, there were just hammock platforms basically on the roof. And it's such a different way of thinking about living with other people and, uh, and, and what was important to uh, people. It's a beautiful, small property to walk around, but I used to live near there. Innovative design, for sure. <laughs> I, I'm slightly bemused that you happen to have that on the tip of your tongue. I'm like, right, favourite buildings. Okay, tick. Um, <laughs> which technology business or idea is your tip to impact the built environment in the coming years? I think one of the challenges we have in public space is uh, who likes what and who complains. And, it, and I think there have been a lot of attempts with crowdfunding platforms like SpaceHive to try and get a public more involved to engage with the public space and to own it as a public. So often when you're thinking about the built environment, you have very few decision makers mm. impacting the lives of very many people. I would be interested to see technologies that democratize more of that concept. 
often in public space, people complain if something's bad enough, but beyond that, yeah. people don't really say anything. I'd be interested to, to, to like, for want of a better word, because it sounds sinister, but harvest more of those opinions to be able to say, well, actually, there's a preference for this way of doing things generally as opposed to that way of doing things. That, of course, opens up a million cans of worms because people generally choose something that's on the menu. And so who's choosing the menu becomes the second order effect that becomes really important as well. I think those those uh, solutions are definitely uh, on the way, which is which mm. is great. But B, I'm, I'm totally with you that the ship still needs um, steering, and you yeah. have to have some form of vision. You can't you can't democratize every part of every process. When you talk about discipline, it's like street art as a discipline. I don't know how much that exists academically. I, I mean, of course it does, but I mean in in the same way that people think of architecture uh, as a discipline or urban planning as this well established, long trodden path of uh, of of you know everything from lampposts to pillar boxes to to parking space dimensions and all of those kind of things. Street art hasn't been around for so long that it's how we plan our spaces to include murals yeah. hasn't happened that much we're really like you know it fits for want of a better phrase again in trend in that street art is a lot about retrofitting cities or retrofitting spaces the old buildings that are basically knackered and have got the walls that people view are pretty ugly are the easiest ones to get permission for it will be interesting to to think about if architects and designers could design for more mutable spaces, spaces that could change more over time. So imagine that you design like a a mural wall, this is the simplest example, within a certain development, but you're not saying what the art's going to be. You're going to say it's going to change every three years, every five years. And it's, it's one way of keeping that space more current, even though the buildings themselves may last 100 years plus, whatever that looks like. We're going to wrap this up before you give away any more of my great ideas. <laughs> but, uh, but Thanks, they, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Has indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was an amazing whirlwind tour from Lee. I'd encourage everyone to have a look at the Global Street Art website and see some of the amazing projects he's worked on. If you're looking for a way to reinvigorate your asset or engage with your local communities, Perhaps it's time to consider street art as an appropriate medium. I'll be back shortly. I'm aiming to get an episode out every two weeks, so do sign up to the newsletter on the website or follow me on social media for updates and further info. Thank you for listening. Thank you.